Let me pray. Father, we uh, again thank you that uh, we can run to you and that your arms are open wide and you love us profoundly. And uh, we just give you thanks. And Lord, I just pray for our time as we dig into this, this issue of the gospel and as we look to equip ourselves to share with people and give people hope. So may you just use this in our hearts and, and may it encourage us in how you've worked. So thank you again. These things we pray in your name. Amen. We live in a world <clears throat> where the, the tyranny of the urgent so often dominates our lives. I know Deanna and I, we have to push our calendars together every week and, and look at our schedules. And, but I think this is also true. When you think of the future and, and thinking about the future, that's hard work. It, it really is harder than we think. Matter of fact, we've been doing some parenting discussions on Wednesday night, and one of the things we've been really have been pushing parents on is how do you parent in light of students, what, what you want them to be when they're 18, 21, 25? You know, what do we want? Are we parenting in light of that? I think it's, it's sometimes it's hard to stop and ask that question. Are we doing that? But think about even the future within churches, the church today. Often do we stop and say, what is the future for the church? And what should it look like down the line? And, but in, in the light of that question, I came up with an interesting quote this week I came across. And, and look at how it reads. It's from Ralph Winter, director of the U.S. Center for World Mission. He said this, We may do well to recognize what seems to be the consistent thrust of the whole Bible, that unless and until, in faith, the future of the world becomes more important than the future of the church, the church has no future. Now let me explain that, and I'll put a, a statement up that I kind of to clarify that, and I turned it around a bit. Look what I said. Giving away the gospel to the world is the future of the church. You see, I think we have to stop and admit, if people don't come to faith, a church begins to wither and die. If transformation in the hearts of people doesn't occur, the church will cease to exist. So without people coming to faith, we shrivel up. And I think the apostles understood this. They weren't living in just the now, the idea that to go and make disciples, they recognized that there was a future church that was going to be birthed and grown up. And they wanted people, as they were training and equipping people, they wanted to live in the light of, of that the gospel needs to be presented into the world to make a difference. Matter of fact, I, I think we, a verse that First Peter from 1 Peter 3.15, we put this on the screen last week even, but look how it reads. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This idea that we are called to be prepared to give away words of life. Give away the gospel to people that we know that God is putting in our path. Now, I think the challenge is when you look at that passage and those last couple of ver er, uh, words there, gentleness and respect. And for us, I think this is a real reminder of how we need to do it. 
Matter of fact, if you're taking notes following along, I said it this way. If we're going to speak words of life into people's lives, it begins with love and care, gentleness, respect. But I think this is the challenge I think that we have at times, is we look to share the gospel and we do, I don't think we really stop and realize that when it comes to respect and gentleness, we really aren't the ones, the, communi- the ones that are communicating aren't the ones defining whether it's coming across as gentle and respectful. It's the person who's listening. Most often is defining whether we're gentle or we're doing it with respect. So this idea of understanding that we need to care and love for one another as we're giving out words of life. Now there's a flip side to this and and kind of a concern I have at times where I see too often people tend to carry this badge of honor on them that says, you know what, I offended people with the gospel. And you go, no, that's not the heart of what what God wants for us to do. But this series, we've jumped into the gospel here. And understand what we're trying to do is where the goal is to try to help us as a body of Christ speak words of life, the gospel, to people that we know and to prepare our hearts the way we do it, but even the very words, are we communicating words effectively to be able to share with people and give them hope in a broken world. And I think that's the challenge for us here today. And what we're doing is we're going to be going over, today we're going over 10 verses, and over the next couple weeks we're going to go through 20 more, frankly, that we can use in our lives as a tool to help lay out what people need. But number two, to move on here, just a reminder, we need to use wisdom and understanding when you speak the gospel. Now, how do we do this? And one of the ways is to look through a lens. When we look at people, we have to figure out what's the starting point. And for some, I said it this way, are they churched? And they might be in a church, and there's lots of people that go to churches who don't know the gospel. Matter of fact, my wife grew up in a church where she didn't really hear the gospel. But they understand some concepts of who God is. But a second category there, are they de-churched? Meaning there's people that for years they've walked away from the church. They haven't been in a fellowship. There hasn't been, there's been stagnant. And then they may be rejected at some point. They grew up in Sunday school, whatever. They've learned some ideas of Jesus, understood the concept of sin or some of the things that go with it. But so they might be dechurched. But the third one, are they unchurched? And just a reminder, this is the fastest growing pe- group of people in the United States. It's people who have never grown up in a home, and they don't even know who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, someone came up to me um, between the services and said, "Yeah, my son bumped into somebody, and they had who's Jesus." They had no clue who he was. But understand, there's an assumption that we have is that everybody knows what Jesus is, what sin is. So the starting point has to be different. 
And matter of fact, I, I can't, won't go here today, but if you go to Acts chapter 17, Paul's engaging the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers in the marketplace. And you'll see that he starts at a different place as he shares about who God is but then, than if he would go into the synagogue and wrestle with the Jews in terms of sharing the gospel there. So we need to understand oftentimes where to start when we share the gospel with people. But let me give you a third reminder as well. Remember that broken lives can be a doorway to give words of life and give words of hope. See, when we love well, when we're engaging with people, when we're caring for them, when life is falling around, when marriages are broken, when families are struggling, when jobs are gone, all of those things, do we, it's an opportunity to walk through the door to speak and love and eventually maybe even to give the gospel. I, I think of an example that popped in my mind. There was a guy, the connection was, is that his wife went to the mops group at my former church. And because I spoke there a couple times, he ends up calling me up out of the blue, and he goes, Ken, can I meet with you? He says, I got an anger problem. And so I ended up going out to his house and meeting with him, and his anger was so bad that he he was fearful, very fearful, that he was going to hurt and abuse his wife and children physically. Matter of fact, he had gone to Mayo Clinic to try to deal with anger from, and try to see if they could do something for him. But that was the doorway to walk into his life. You see, for us, do we stop and recognize that Jesus, that God is putting doorways in front of us that he's saying, walk through, love, care, give words of life. But let's dig into the gospel just a little bit. And again, these verses that we cover is an example, and there's others, this isn't all, all inclusive, but it's some opportunities for you to just think through a progression of how you share faith with somebody else. Do they recognize what it means to, to, to need a Savior? And so number four, to begin with, and really kind of digging in here the next couple weeks, I said it this way, we must be able to articulate the need for salvation. It's very important for us to be able to speak words that communicate why Jesus came. Now, understand this, as followers of Christ, most of us recognize that there was a point, I know in my, my own life, I gave my life to Christ when I was very young. I was probably five, six years old. I remember going home, and my mom was actually out on a tractor in the field, and I ran out and said, Mom, I accepted Christ as my Savior. But I knew there was a vacation Bible school, and I knew that I was a sinner, that I was separated from God. There was a moment that that took place, and many of you can recall those moments. But you understand this idea that I knew that sin separated me from God. But that's not necessarily true anymore. Matter of fact, let me just play a video clip for you. And when you think of this idea, what is sin to the world out there? What is sin? Sin? You're kidding, right? Sin? Sin is bad. Can I ask you a question real fast? Yeah, just trying to find out to you what is sin. 
What is what? Sin. Sin. Well, uh, if you'd watch me last night, you might have known what it was. I believe sin is just a, a mind opportunity for you to either blame yourself or others. I can't explain it. You know, but sin is, sin is, you know, smoking a cigarette, that's a sin. You know, these patients, those are sin. Well, you people, you know, think it seems like everything's wrong. You know, breathing's a sin. You know. What is sin? Well, there's lots of different kinds. Lust, theft, uh, oh, now I'm in there. Sin, something which you, which you should not do. In my conscience, sin is when you conscious you're doing something wrong. We're trying to get definition of what people think sin is. Sin? Mm, depends on what per what what the person is, what the person's morals is, or values is. Each person differs. What is sin to you? Oh my gosh, I'd, I'd rather be left out. Pretty much everything that's fun. <laughs> to you, what is sin? What is sin? Uh, sin would be something that moves you away from your your goals. Really, everything is sin. The word, really, to me, the word is sin because everything you do, you can't do nothing really without sin. Sin? Oh, I don't know. I'd say doing something that you feel uncomfortable doing. Sin is not accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. Doing something you know is wrong, I guess. It's anything that you uh, do wrong against God. What to you is sin? That's a hard, that's a hard question. That one I don't think I can answer in just a, without a lot of thought. Let me ask you a question. If somebody came up and stuck a camera in your face and they said, what is sin? How would you answer that? It's not meeting my goals. Is that what you'd say? Do you understand the challenge with the issue of sin and, and why it exists? Those are a real pertinent question, especially when you think of the future, eternity even. See, the, the challenge for us is that we live in a world where sin is relative. There's no definition of sin anymore out there. And, and even if they believe the ideas of God, or that there's a God, one of the things they still do is they still approach it on the idea of a scale. I got a picture for you, and it's really this is the heart of what our culture believes. If I do enough good things on one side, the good things I do will outweigh the bad things that I do on the other side. Therefore, you know what? I got a good chance that eternity I'm going to spend time with God. It's this whole scale approach. And they look at their lives and they go, you know what? I'm just not that bad of a person. You see, I think the challenge, I use this question from time to time, and I say this, if you died tonight and you went to heaven and God just say, why should you let you in? See, that's a really irrelevant question. It stops people. People struggle with that. But people keep believing that their works will earn them some kind of merit towards salvation. They believe that God is supposed to let them in because God's love and most often, you know, a lot of times they don't even believe in a hell anymore, but they, if they acknowledge it, they'll go, yeah, it's the scale thing. But what do the scriptures teach? 
Can we articulate that to people? And this is with a challenge, and as I was talking to some people in between, they, they, they were, we were saying, maybe we need to, the, the 30 verses that we are going to go through, we need to memorize those. You know, you probably, if you were in a WANA or a kids club somewhere, you probably have memorized these. But let me jump in there. Letter A, here's what we need to be able to articulate. That we have a sinful heredity. That we are born sinners. And look at one of the passages that we can use to open up the eyes of the heart for people. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. The root of sin began with Adam. And Adam was held responsible for bringing it into the human race, and it flowed down from generation to generation, and the consequence was death and spiritual separation from God. And sin dominates and rules this, this planet called Earth now. But here's where I've got to remind you that there's even another level to this in terms of our own depravity. And look at Psalm 51.5. Here's the psalmist. Look what he writes. This is why the, by the way, this is where he's confessing his sin for adultery. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Now, I'm a father, a grandfather, and, and you hold the child in your hands for the first time. As a parent, what do you think about that child? And it's thoughts like this, oh, my child is beautiful, special, pure. But the truth is the scriptures teach what? It teaches this, that that child came out of the womb. It had seeds of sin already growing in it. Do we know that? Do people understand that? And the, the, the illustration I keep using is, well, the people kind of go, oh, I'm not sure. I said, just work in a nursery, okay? Where, where the, the kid goes over to the other one and grabs the toy from him, and you go, where did you learn that? We got a picture from our daughter this week in California, and um, Micah's two had, had all these spots over his arms and his face, and was it sick or something? You know, was it was, what was going on? So Deanna texted back, and and we get a note back from Bethany. She said, "Oh, his sister who is four, okay, Addie pushed him into the bushes, and it was a rose bush, okay." And you go, where did she learn that to push her brother like that? And I said it was her grandma. It wasn't her grandfather, but it was Deanna. <laughs> no, it came naturally. It was sitting there, those seeds. And if you watch a little child, and we Skyped the other night, and she was pushing her brother away and didn't want him to be there. Where did she learn that? It, it, it's, she was born that way. But another one, let her be because of that. We all have depraved natures and we're trapped in our sinfulness. And a verse that you can use to communicate that, Jeremiah 17.9, and remind you that this is really pre-salvation. Look at how it goes. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. Before Christ, before the Spirit was deposited in our souls, the natural man is deceived and they really can't 
earn, it can't understand what righteousness is. And the heart lies to itself. And it's kind of believing a lie that, you know what, I'm not that bad, you know, to be condemned by God. Why should I? I'm not that bad a person. I don't deserve separation from God for the little sins that I committed. And look at all the good things I've done that deserve something, doesn't it? See, that's a blinder over the heart. And it's hard to see that because of the self-love and their pride. They don't see themselves. And then they just live their lives and they claim the right to determine what's good and what's okay. They they claim the right to determine that all paths lead to God. And where God says, no. So you understand the challenge in that, in the deceitfulness. Look at 1 John 1.8. Another one to use. For if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's the deception again. People want to go on, not me. But deception is what keeps them from understanding their spiritual brokenness. But this understanding of sin and this reality that we're born this way, that we have a depraved nature, understand that is not a popular thing in our culture. And matter of fact, when you look even at church history, there's always been pushback on this particular is, this issue. Matter of fact, if you go back to the development of the church, the first time was about 400 AD. I don't know if you realize this, but there was a debate that arose around surrounding really what is depravity, what is sin, and, and do, do children have sin? And there was a controversy arose when a British monk by the name of Pelagius he picked a, a theological and a biblical fight with a church leader by the name of Augustine. And Pelagius didn't like that the church, what the church was teaching about the depth of sin. And Pelagius denied, he, was, he denied the original doctrine of original sin. And he argued that Adam's sin did not get transferred on to the next generation. And he argued that, that he said that if there was a moral responsibility to obey the law, then God has to give us the ability, so therefore we're totally free to do this and we can run and seek Christ. But Augustine pushed back. But, but he, did not, he didn't deny that we had a will, and he argued that the will was very capable of making choices. But he argued that fallen man lost, and as the phrase was, lost its moral liberty, lost its moral compass because of Adam. And so the state of original sin leaves us in a condition of being unable to refrain from sinning. Go to a nursery. They cannot not do it. Now we put rules in place to temper it, but, but understand that we begin to choose, and Augustine said that we choose what we desire. And he said this, our desires remain chained to the sinful impulses in our lives. And he argued that the freedom that remains in the will really leads to self-love. And thus in the flesh we're only free to sin and there's really no freedom in one sense to pursue a righteousness. Augustine said that liberty can only come 
from without, from God working. God had to work on the soul. He had to enter this world and he had, through love and grace, he had to begin to liberate us from becoming deceived. But matter of fact, this wasn't the last time. You fast forward to about 1500, the issue rose again. And he was central to really Martin Luther leaving the Catholic Church. And one of the men that was opposed to what Luther was writing and doing in the day was a scholar by the name of Erasmus. And scholars, uh, Luther said this, Erasmus was a Pelagian in Catholic clothing. And the debates centered between those two around the issue of the liberty of the will and of where sin comes from and where does love and grace fit. And it was a key issue of why the Protestant church was birthed. Why the split came at that point when you got a Protestants and you got Catholics. See, the debate over the nature of sin and depravity is still even alive in our culture of today. People don't want to say that somehow there's within us this desire for things that are not righteous. But let me push it forward. Let her see. Because of that, we all commit sins. Because of our nature, we commit sins. No one is exempt from having sinful lives. But here's where Ken, they come and say, Ken, I'm not that bad. And you go, what do you say? Because they might be really nice people. Well, here's a verse that you can point them to, Romans 3.23. Many of you know this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, it doesn't say some of us sin and some of us do not. All of us have sinned. Well, let me show you another one. 1 John 10, chapter 1. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. How does it flow then for some people? Okay, we sin. And, and, but this is where people begin to push their thinking. Okay, I've done a couple things that are bad, but you know what? I haven't raped anybody. I've never beat anybody up. I've never killed anybody. And matter of fact, you know what? I served in the soup kitchen last Christmas. And I, I spent time, I rang the bells for the Salvation Army. I, I even put some money in those bells at the, the grocery store. And I felt really good about it. And, and you know what? I went to confirmation when I grew up for some people. And, and you know what? Even last week, there was a girl that was dead on the side of the road. Her tire was flat. And I stopped and changed it. And it was really cold out there. But do you see what's happening? They're moving to the scale. If I do enough righteous deeds, I should be able to earn some kind of, it should count in some way in the eternal sense. And my bad, they're just, my bad things that I do, they're just not that bad. So how do we share? Well, let me take you to the next one that we need to be able to communicate. We have letter D. We have all tried the route of unaccepted righteousness. See, this is for all of us. We grow up believing this and we default at a young age that we can somehow balance out. 
We know we do some things bad. We've done it. But, but those things that we do should balance them out. And God is going, no, it doesn't do it. Matter of fact, if you've ever had a child get caught, you know, I think of the times we discipline our children and consequences were coming and they knew it. You know, you're going to do, this is going to be the result. And you know what would come out of their mouths? No, 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 don't do that. I'll make up for it. You ever had kids do that? What are they trying to do? They're saying this, is if I do good things, it's going to make up for those bad things over here. I can rework the system. Economy says that I can do enough good. It's going to work for me. But look at Isaiah 64, 6a. Just a powerful verse. Maybe you've memorized this already, but it just reminds us, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. See, the gospel says that any good work, apart from a relationship with Christ, counts as zero. Nada, in regards to eternity. It teaches us that you can help a thousand old ladies and men across the street, and if you don't have a relationship with Christ, it means zero credit in terms of eternity in heaven. Look at one more verse. Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, But because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Good works means zero to obtain an eternal good standing with God. As a matter of fact, you have to understand that this is the contradiction between Christianity, true faith, and every other religion in the world. Because the other faiths out there, whether it's Islam or Mormon or you name it down the line, they believe that trying harder, good works should count. There's going to be better karma the next day if I do this good stuff. That salvation somehow can be earned or a better future can be gotten because of one trying harder. And you go, doesn't work. Scriptures do not teach that. And that's the difference between our faith and somebody else. But there's one last consequence that we need to be able to communicate. Letter E. That we are all legally condemned. And look at Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. See, people who don't know Christ, they they keep believing that, you know, if I just try hard on keeping the Ten Commandments, that's your count. But let me ask you a question here. Is there anybody in this room that has perfectly honored our father and our mother every time, all of our lives? And you go, I don't think so. Is there anybody in here that can say they've never deceived Somebody in some way? Stolen something maybe? See, can anybody claim that? And the answer is no. We stand guilty before God and one sin, just one dishonoring of mom and dad, convicts us and says, 
It's unacceptable righteousness. The wages of sin is death and it's separation from God. Well, let, me, let me give you one more verse that we need to write down. And, and you know what? Take these verses and put them then in your phone again and put them on a card. You need to have them with us when we, when we go with us if you don't know them. James 2.10 Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. See, this thing called sin separates us from God. We're born that way. Can't work to pay it back. We can't make or earn extra bounty points that God says, well done, doesn't work that way. But, but, but here's the deal. Even in our lives, we kind of live a contradiction in our lives. Because if you think about it, when you grow up, if we learn to obey, we get praised and rewarded. If we learn to work hard at school, what do we get? Get a good grade. And we work hard at work, and what do we get? A good a check. And we work at loving somebody, and what do we get? Some love coming back. So we believe that somehow we can earn and work and get something back of merit. And the reality is that the scriptures, this book, and the gospel says no. That we stand separated from God. And before Christ, before we put our faith in Christ, we live as autonomous creatures that say, I want to live my world the way I want to live my world. I want to define sin the way I want to do it. I'm going to define that my works are righteous and that they should earn it. And I'm going to define my way to get to heaven. Do you see the autonomy of our lives and the lives of people? But there's really good news as well when I think of this. And it's why we're even gathered here today. Because something has worked, something has broken through sin. And let me put Romans 1.16 on the screen just to end here. Where Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. And you know what? When I was five or six, somewhere the gospel broke through my sinfulness. It revealed it. It revealed my need for a Savior. And I responded. See, this isn't the end. Even those people are separated for God. The call on us, if we know Christ, is to begin to take the gospel and give it away. Give words of hope to people around us. The gospel can save. And we need to be prepared and ready. And we need to do it with gentleness and respect. And that's really good news that he's not done with us yet. Let's stand and pray. Father, I recognize that even talking through the issue of separation from you is hard for us to even comprehend at times and how we're trapped in our own sin but yet Lord there's really good news and it's your son Jesus and Lord as we walk out in this place maybe we're one that's never really been confronted in our own sinfulness that we keep trying to work harder to earn your favor and Lord you tell us that that is so futile 
you love us completely. And yes, there's a response on our part, but Lord, you're the one that initiated breaking into this world, a world, a broken world, and giving us Jesus. And for that, I just want to thank you and praise you. But Lord, as we walk through this week, would we see people differently? Would we see people that need to understand that they are separated from you? So give us the boldness, give us the ability to love so well that, that, that you're bringing people into our paths and that the doors are being opened that we can walk through and love them and serve them and give them words of hope. So give us those opportunities even this week. And we commit the gospel to you and we thank you for the gospel. And may it change our hearts and our lives. These things we pray in your name. Amen.